Hello, this is Dusk Lantern. For those of you who are new here, I am a Rus scholar, also known as a Confucian scholar. Dusk Lantern is my scholar name, and this practice of having scholar names is a part of a tradition that extends back many centuries and is a scholarly practice of my own ancestors. The concept of a scholar name is similar to a pen name, but of course used for scholarly works. Today, I'm here with my good friend, Dr. and Reverend Kuntz. He is an expert in Christendom and Christian theology, a professor of theology for many years, and an active minister in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Kuntz, thank you for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's going to be fun. I, I enjoyed last time, and I think this time won't be any different. That's great. So today we're discussing C.S. Lewis's work, The Abolition of Man. Uh, it's a short but actually pretty profound work discussing the uh, nature and impact of a society without a doubt based on true principles. Well, Dr. Kirsten, how would you characterize C.S. Lewis? Because he's done a lot in his life. How would you characterize him? C.S. Lewis was, first of all, a philosopher and then became a theologian in the sense that his thinking was shaped by first his conversion um, in 1930 to what you could call theism, the belief that there is a God. And then in the years after that, under the influence, especially of the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was his colleague at Oxford University, Lewis came to a conviction about uh, the nature of Christianity and the truth of the claims of Christianity that Jesus Christ is, is alive, that he rose from the dead. So that shaped him. Uh, but I think particularly for today, what shapes Lewis's work is the sense that the First World War, of which he was a veteran, and the Second World War, which is the origin of the book, The Abolition of Man, were fundamentally reshaping the way that people thought in a way that was negative, that it was giving people especially a certain delusional pride, what you would call hubris, about themselves. And this book is particularly pointed at that delusional pride, although you can see the same thing if you read what's probably Lewis's most popular or most famous work, uh, which are the Chronicles of Narnia, a series of children's books that even if you are 70 years old, I think repay rereading. But The Abolition of Man, like some of his other more philosophical books like The Problem of Pain or theological books like Mere Christianity, look at the theoretical or philosophical underpinnings of a lot of the things that you'll find in his fiction if you read that. He's quite a talented, productive man. Let's do a brief overview of Lewis's claims in his work, The Abolition of Man. There are three major points he explains. First, he critiques moral subjectivism, the notion that there is no objective morality in reality. Second, he discusses what happens to both man and the society if we take the idea of moral subjectivism to its logical end. Third, he repeatedly emphasizes throughout his work the need for education to cultivate a sense of beauty regarding morality, what Lewis calls the ordinate affections. So let's go into that first point, Lewis's critique of moral subjectivism. Dr. Kuntz, would you say that there is a distinction between moral subjectivism and moral relativism that is worth making? Yeah, yeah, I do I do think there is a difference and the difference is that moral subjectivism is a weaker assertion than moral relativism. Moral relativism is a little easier to put down or refute. So if you say all truth is relative, it really just depends on who you are or who's speaking or what that the speaker's life experiences have been. Moral relativism is just flatly and obviously 
self-contradictory, right? Uh, all truth is relative. You mean including the statement all truth is relative, right? So that's just kind of easier. Moral subjectivism, which is what Lewis was specifically attacking in simply writing the abolition of man, is harder to refute because it's it's both a little harder to understand, but I think also comes a little more naturally to people than sheer relativism because it says that everything, uh, all assertions of value, certainly, but but perhaps even fact, are actually statements about the speaker's feeling or sense of things. So if I say like, if I say that action is disgusting, then what I'm really saying is I am disgusted by that action. That's what subject moral subjectivism would say. What I'm saying when I say that action is disgusting is that there is an objective category of disgusting things, things that awaken disgust in human beings, not just me, to which that action belongs. So moral subjectivism, I think, is it's a little hard to understand because it's a little more nuanced than than sheer relativism, but it is in that way, I think, more corrosive than relativism because relativism, I can say, well, do you think it's wrong to just walk up to somebody on the street and murder him? I mean, is that is that also relative? That's only relatively wrong. People are going to have a harder time, you know, actually sticking with it at that point. Subjectivism is harder to refute because the person is is always sort of talking, <laughs> talking sort of, you know, like thinks that he has one up on you in every discussion because he he's like psychoanalyzing you at all times. And that, that's that's why it's so popular, I think, particularly for modern people, is that moral subjectivism indulges our intense love of psychology and and of navel gazing um and and that's what lewis was really going after a common example of people turning objective statements of morality into nasal gazing psychoanalysis is the usage of the suffix phobe or phobic onto anything that itself is an object of moral criticism so if a person declares that marriage is between a man and a woman by definition, then that person becomes labeled homophobic. Or if a person declares that a woman is, by definition, someone who has the capacity to become pregnant and give birth, then that person who says such a thing is then considered transphobic. There are some various ideas in this discussion where Lewis is pointing out that we can only really end up in a position of hypocrisy, right? So this is something you were talking about earlier, where if you hear somebody say, you know, you shouldn't judge other people, well, that's inherently a moral statement. And it's also very self-contradictory because implicit in that is a judgment that's 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 wrong to judge other people. So that's the most common, I think, formulation. that Right. Oh, yeah. Use. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The various points he makes is that if you strip away one value, then this causes a sort of slippery slope where you just keep going and then you could potentially end up with valuing nothing in the world of, if you just say, okay, this is disgusting to you, but not necessarily to me. If you keep going on that direction, there's really no true stopping point. There, Yeah, there isn't, because what it's going to create is a divorce that Lewis describes as men without chests, where a person's intellectual convictions have no relationship to his, his feelings or what Lewis calls visceral man, viscera being sort of like your guts, like your deepest emotions. And when your deepest emotions are not also trained by your education, you end up having grown up in some sense or having been educated, being intellectual specifically, but your emotions have not been educated likewise. So it's it's like you have grown all the way up. You've gotten as tall as you as you should, but you don't have 
a chest, your your lungs are weak, your heart is weak, your muscles are poorly developed. So that's that's the fear that he has because what he's really doing in the book is responding to something that was a textbook. It, it was called the Green Book. Its technical title is The Control of Language. And that was the book that launched him on the abolition of man because it was in that book that students throughout Great Britain were being taught in our equivalent of high school, that all feelings, all values, all senses of things are subjective perceptions. And Lewis said that that will create this divorce between the intellect and the emotion that will create men without chests. Lewis is picking up on the discourse that is used in you know, something that people would just immediately look over or overlook, I mean, yeah. Um, which is it's just a it's just a grammar textbook or it's just a you know writing manual. It's not right. right what kind of philosophy would be in here. But discourse is very important. So the ability to pick up on how somebody uses words as a reflection of their own, the paradigm with which they see the world is a really important skill to have, actually. And it's actually a good way to know how to read other people. These men without chess, right? So we have uh, Lewis's example where, you know, he'd rather play poker with somebody who simply is raised to believe that cheating is wrong than somebody who is a fierce, quote unquote, intellectual, but has no such feeling because that person, the latter person, is more likely to cheat. Now, once you realize this very necessary connection between what's in the heart and what's in the mind, you can now enter into the world of Confucian understanding. In classical Chinese, there is this word called Xin, and the Korean counterpart is called Maum. These words are often translated as mind and heart, as one term. So Xin, mind and heart. Maum, mind and heart. And if you want a single English word for this, I think the closest you can get is by using the word soul. But the idea here is that you cannot rightly separate the mind from the heart because if you do this, what you have left is not a true person. The reason you cannot truly and realistically separate the mind from the heart is because who you really are does come from both aspects. And these two dimensions of the person interdependently influence each other. Now, for the sake of logical clarity, it can be helpful to talk about the mental processes as uh, separate from or versus the emotional attachments of a person. But for the sake of assessing a person, including yourself, if you are trying to become a better person, a process that we rue call self-cultivation, you will need to understand that the mind and heart are integrated, like husband and wife are integrated into a marriage. And from there comes a single marital life. So that's uh, similar to what you were talking about, Dr. Kuntz, about there being a divorce if you attempt to cultivate the mind but not the heart. And because this mind and heart integration is so important for developing virtue and wisdom, I never recommend that people learn from professors of moral philosophy, even those who purport to teach Confucianism. Let me put it this way, if they themselves do not believe in what they teach, then they have no true insights to give. Confucius tells us to look at a person's intentions, his actions, and also look at wherein this person rests content. This is from Analects, Book 2, Section 10. And you can listen to a more thorough explanation of this idea on the Analects section of Rekindled Radiance, where you are listening. But for now, 
Notice that Confucius says nothing about looking at what a person professes to believe. The notion of judging a person on the basis of the person's words is left conspicuously absent. And this is why, when you find out the real fact that professors of ethics are no less likely to commit adultery than anyone else. You should realize that there is, in fact, very little you can learn from such persons for yourself to become wiser and more virtuous persons. Learning from such persons who cultivate their mind but not their heart is like trying to become a faithful Christian by reading books by biblical scholars or professors of religion who do not actually believe in the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now. I think this is a good place to go into the second point, which is what will happen in a society that's run by these men without chess. So this is Lewis essentially predicts this sort of dystopian future, and well, the present today. I mean, Lewis is writing in what the um, what decade was this? I think the thirties, if I remember. Yeah, it's ni- it's nineteen forty three, so it's oh. right about in the middle of the Second World War. Okay, so Lewis is writing this after Huxley's dystopian novel, Brave New World, is published. What Lewis says about what he calls the conditioners, who are men that forge an artificial Tao and use that to control the general populace, is abstractly reminiscent of the dystopian world building in Brave New World. I believe in that novel, they're called the world controllers. It's a similar kind of idea to the conditioners, if you're familiar with this work. But let's talk about today's reality rather than the fictional novel Brave New World. Because Lewis is able to predict certain facets of our modern experience, uh, although he does this in a very perhaps vague and abstract way, his language is able to predict what we have been experiencing, especially the past, say, 5 to 15 years. Lewis says, and I'll quote here, Once we killed bad men, now we liquidate unsocial elements. Virtue has become integration. And I think we can see this manifest today with some rather heavy-handed tactics to strong-arm people into parroting certain beliefs that are of questionable validity. And these tactics might include having all corporate media outlets promote the same message, So all these networks that are ultimately owned by the same five or six parent or holding companies will say the same exact message word for word. Or all these social media platforms, also corporate owned, will heavily promote certain notions and but bury, if not outright ban, others. Something else that Lewis says is, and I'll quote again here, I am inclined to think that the conditioners will hate the conditioned, though regarding as an illusion the artificial conscience in which they produce us, their subjects, they, the conditioners, will perceive that it creates in us an illusion of meaning for our lives, which compares favorable with the fertility of their own. And they, the conditioners, will envy us as eunuchs envy men. I think that's a really interesting point because if you're just a commoner like you and you and I, um, <laughs> we start to get the sense we're actually hated by those in power. I think that that has um, that has a basis in both the factors that Lewis is discussing and the fact that he's not because this is a to be fair to him, this is a very small book with a limited purpose, which it achieves, I think, extremely well. But because the limited purpose has to do with the overtaking of education as an essentially moral philosophical enterprise and replacing it with education as essentially a psychological and sociological enterprise, that limited purpose also doesn't capture the reality of the separation in life between the conditioners and the conditioned. So those who create our media and what else? I mean, run our elections, get elected, things like that, live increasingly in a way physically distant, a brave new world kind of a way, physically distant from those of us who are 
conditioned in in one or, or in one or more ways or in a brave new world sense have left or are trying to leave or desire to leave the reservation those other factors which involve economic realities access to capital all kinds of things like that i think also increase the disdain or dislike or sheer ignorance of the the commoners or the underclass or the conditioned or our you know whatever perspective you want to take on the great unwashed masses you know of which of which we are both members so i don't think that lewis is wrong i just think that the the edu- the specifically educational analysis that he's providing in abolition of man captures one of the factors that goes into the the dislike that elites in the modern world and the contemporary world often manifest for the people that they're supposed to be helping or or governing or for whom they produce the media that they do produce or or however you want to look at it yeah the lives of the powerful are very very different from the lives of the multitudes of common people in every nearly every conceivable manner you can see some of this difference leading to a complete dismissal of the lives of the common man in, say, for example, air travel. For all the supposed concern about protecting the environment, one trip on a personal jet creates at least as much pollution as 100 trips on a commercial airliner. There is also a very major difference in the treatment the ordinary person receives at the airport compared to the people who own their own jet. So the difference in daily life experience correlates very plainly with the implied disdain and dismissal of those who are conditioned. One thing that stuck out to me about the quotation I had read here was the comparison of the conditioner to the eunuch. Historically, the eunuch is a person who is castrated in order to avoid himself of any personal familial interests in the form of his own offspring, which, in turn, frees him up to more closely serve his master. That this is such an alien and unhuman form of life is one great reason why Confucian scholars have historically opposed eunuchs. But what C.S. Lewis is emphasizing here is the other reason why the Ru have historically characterized eunuchs negatively. Sometimes eunuchs seize power because they have all this energy that would have otherwise gone into into marriage and having children. But because they no longer have that avenue of life, some of them decide to put all this energy into the obtaining and wielding of power. Similarly, the closer people are to the powerful and wealthy classes, I'm talking about, for example, people in the upper class or even the upper middle class, people who are perhaps professors at medical schools that might be some of these people. But the closer you are to the powerful and the wealthy, the fewer children, if indeed any, they tend to have. And the powerful and wealthy also promote the normalization of manners of life that obstruct procreation whether through financial coercion, financial incentives, or more directly by promoting identities and relationships that preclude natural and fecund procreation. And all this leads us nicely into the third element, I think, of C.S. Lewis's discussion, which is the need to educate the young so that they do indeed love what is good and what is right, what Lewis calls ordinate affections. You know, yeah. I think this is the key actually to really going further into this discussion. Ordinate affections means to, on an emotional level, desire things according to their relative value, which is not to say to be relativistic, but to use an easy example to value family over money. So you have these ordinate values, and we need to raise the young to feel that, to really do feel that. Right. Um, I live in the Bay Area, at least for the time being. And here, I was thinking recently about why is there such a lack of good culture? And I think what happens when you have 
all these people coming here who are engineers living with mostly only other engineers from various different countries, and they have various different native tongues and hardly spend any time with their children because they're always working. Even if they're telecommuting, they're really not spending time with their family. Right. When you have this situation where the parents have an education that hardly emphasized anything in the humanities, which is often the case in modern East Asia, itself a very ironic contrast with its Confucian past. When you don't have a very developed humanities education with its notions of non-physical beauty, for example, in the form of poetry, then what you have are people who are greatly proficient in building practical things, tangible things, but tend to lack the sensitivity to develop subtle forms and expressions of beauty and grace and pleasantry. What I see in the Bay Area is a lot of people who, in fact, lack etiquette or anything that could even resemble or come close to the Confucian notion of Li. The concept of Li contains smaller notions of etiquette, manners, courtesy, consideration, but also moral propriety, ritual, ceremony. And for those of you listening who want to know what Li is and why it is so important, a good place to start is to go to my series on the Shunzi and listen to chapter 19 entitled Discourse on Ritual. And if you go there and listen, this will help you have a deeper understanding of the various ceremonies and rituals you engage in, such as funerals, or weddings, or if you are a Christian, the Lord's Supper. You'll find the kind of analysis that can apply to any ritual that is based on proper feelings and proper moral and ethical relationships. Now, if you are a person without a sense of beauty or ordinary affections, returning back to C.S. Lewis's point, you become something of a livestock animal. You exist and you, you are taken care of to the extent that you can make your owners wealthy. So you might be well paid and have access to many luxuries like Facebook and Google provide their employees, but this only really makes you into more of a Wagyu cattle than not a cattle. Employees are in a sense servants because when you're an employee, you're not asked to make choices based on your own moral discretion, but rather you work at the discretion, the direction and the whims of your employer. You might be well paid and taken care of, but so are house slaves compared to field slaves. And so are Wagyu cattle compared to ordinary cattle. So why is this important? Because I think when we have a society that tries to get us to value certain things over others, it really turns us more or less into some kind of cattle, you know, because you're there to produce, you know, to, to profit your owner, but yeah. your life is relatively nice. You know, Wagyu yeah. cattle get massages and eat very nice, uh, nicely. So that's that's something that I think is important to recognize. And I also think this taps into other things that are happening now, such as there's Chat GPT or am I saying that right? GPT, I think. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, you have these uh, bots, right? And it's becoming harder to distinguish people from these AI bots. And to me, this. This has to do a lot with a lack of raising people to be fully human. Because if you look at the writing styles or the stories that they make or the images that they create, there's actually not much of a soul to them. So you can actually still distinguish, but most people can't distinguish the work of AI bots from actual human work. And I think that's, that has a lot to do with the spiritual deterioration of our generations. I think that there is a term for the sense that something is off that people have when they're looking at AI or other things, AI generated images specifically, that's the uncanny valley. And I think one of the hopeful things about the abolition of man is Lewis's sense that what you are teaching when you're teaching ordinate affections 
because it aligns, because it harmonizes with human nature, instinctive senses of what is right and wrong, instinctive senses of what is beautiful and what is hideous, what is wonderful and what is reprehensible. As uneducated as those senses are, or really almost as starved as those senses are, that that people want to see such things or they they would like to be trained in the in those things, but they never have been because their education was entirely geared toward getting a job and or making a lot of money and or building something specifically, not not realizing something or painting something, but building something. Because of that, you are appealing when you're appealing for, can't you see this isn't a real human? Can't you see this doesn't reflect reality? You do have nature on your side. And that is really the only ground for recovery or change, both in a person's mind, but also because this is about education, Lewis saw it as as a civilization-wide crisis. That's your only ground for hope that your civilization is going to turn around, is that the appeal to nature and then the teaching of what the right order of things is in in one's affections and one's thoughts and one's whatever, that you are appealing to something that resonates with what is deepest inside a human being so that they don't become altogether animalistic, right? That they they just follow blind instinct and, and don't learn anything. And it's like their soul has been snuffed out. That before that happens or so that that does not happen, certainly, you appeal to something that resonates within them. I think, yeah, that is beautiful, <laughs> right? Uh, and that over there is not beautiful. And I know that, right? And the uncanny valley is one, I think, just small example of that. People having an innate sense of, in that case, what is real and what is unreal. Yeah. My concern is that people, especially the young, have already lost their sense of the uncanny valley. Because they've already been raised to have so little appreciation of natural beauty. And because they are so superficial in so many aspects of their lives, that the way in which they express themselves is nearly indistinguishable from a computer simulated voice, art, or whatever have you. Well, let's go back to that point you made about utilizing nature. Lewis makes the point that instincts are like people. They all have these opinions and you can't blindly follow them. So the key is that these are educated instincts. Yeah, right. And that relates to his another point that he makes, which is that when you're trying to figure out what he terms the Tao, these ordinate principles, you can figure out which one is more important than the other because you'll have to see whether they conflict, right? Uh, right. With one another and which one must take priority. So this, this gets to me to a question, a few questions, actually. So I have this question here, does America have a DAO? But I also, before you give your answer, I also want to bring up this in the context of what Socrates says in Plato's Republic about his social description, his cultural description of democracy as being all about equality and freedom. And how it, you know, you see these kinds of warped relationships within democracy where I can quote here, because I have a, a book here ready. He's talking about how this changes many relationships. So he says, the father grows accustomed to descend to the level of the sons and fear them. And the son is the level with the father. He having no respect or reverence for either of his parents. That is his freedom. And there's other relationships that he mentions like, you know, in the state of society, the master fears and flatters the scholars, and the scholars despise their masters and tutors. And so you have all these relationships that start to be dominated by notions of you know, liberty, quality, and not in a good way. So I'm wondering, where can we go from, from this idea? Does America have a Tao, strictly speaking, Lewis is just using the word Tao, not in a Eastern philosophically sophisticated sense, but simply to indicate the way that nature pursues. I mean, he could use the, he could and, and probably should have honestly used the Western word fusis, which has a longer philosophical pedigree that he actually would know. 
But the idea is just that there is nature and that nature can be appealed to um, as a ground for reflection, discussion, and then particularly political organization. So strictly speaking, America can't have a Tao because he's talking about universal human nature, which is what Fusis certainly means in Greek philosophy. On the other hand, and to actually answer your question, America's having a Tao has to do, I think, with answering a historical question, which is to say, no, I don't think America has a Tao. I think a variety of peoples and people groups who either have been influential in America or are currently might have a a way of being or a way of looking at the world. So for example, just to use the two terms that you used earlier, talking about liberty and equality. Equality in just American, I, I want to say American history, but even that sounds too abstract. The historical experience of American peoples. Okay. So let's let's take the basically entirely Protestant, 90% British descended white group who is the American population for uh, probably the first 200 years of America as a place. And then as immigration picks up after our civil war, uh, that's going to change. That group, when it's talking about equality, is not talking about really an abstract philosophical quantum. It's generally talking about the idea that people have some sort of equality of opportunity. That's an idea that if you go back into that into that group's historical experience, I mean, hundreds of years, 500, 700 years back into the English Middle Ages, is caused by a circumstance you get again on the American frontier, which really only like accelerates it, which is that you're living in a, in a very rural, low population place. And if you don't make your own way through your own physical efforts, you are not worth very much as a man. That's also going to create a, an enormous stress on liberty because liberty actually enables you to survive rather than on, say, order or obedience, virtues that would be much more necessary in a city, which is what that's all Socrates knows, for example. So there are historical circumstances, if you want to talk about the Tao of nations or groups or peoples, there are historical circumstances that always have to be kept in mind that you're not talking when you're talking about history, about philosophical abstractions or ideas or categories in the same way that you can, I think, very reasonably when you're talking about, well, what is Fusis or what is Tao, right? Because those are those are usually, even though they come out of specific people and, and persons, those are universal assertions, right? If I say that there is nature, I'm not just making an assertion about the English or the Koreans or the you know South Africans. I'm making an assertion about a nature common to those three groups and all the other ones too. So when you're talking about America, it's very hard for me to think of these philosophical quanta or political concepts, or almost, they become almost verbal memes, apart from the historical experiences of the different peoples that have made up America. So I don't, I, I don't feel that Socrates' description of America resonates either with family relationships in American historical experience necessarily or with the circumstances of a rural people, which Americans were overwhelmingly until the 20th century. So you've got three, four centuries of life before then, and then they become a majority urbanized people. Significantly though, much of the American population is descended from people who immigrated here after the Civil War into cities or urbanized areas. And that does affect your perception of what America is or is about or is for. And I, I totally get that. Um, but that would that that's also why it's hard to say, oh, America has this or America is that, because it has so many different peoples with so many different experiences here at this point, too. It's hard to fault Americans for not realizing or or simply forgetting simply how vast their nation is and how diverse our peoples are. Not only in terms of where their ancestors originated from, but the daily experiences within or without the city. 
and nobody, uh, almost nobody could be faulted for not fully comprehending how vastly different their ancestors' lives were from their own lives today. This question, I asked Dr. Kuntz about whether America has a Tao is tricky because there are two definitions we've been using here. The first is C.S. Lewis's definition of ordinate moral principles. The second uh, is an integrated way of life. There is, as Dr. Kuntz has been pointing out, too much diversity within the American experience, both geographically and through time, to be able to describe any cohesive, unitary, integrated way of life. There is no single American culture, in other words. Culture comes from both uh, philosophical and historical conditions. So it's not quite easy to say that there's a Tao, either in C.S. Lewis's term or um, in a more Eastern way. Sure. Let's talk a little bit more about C.S. Lewis's definition of the Tao as a set of objectively true, ordinate moral principles. He has devoted a good chunk of his text towards gathering together evidence of universal human values found throughout various cultures in his appendix called Illustrations of the Tao. Dr. Kuntz, you said that C.S. Lewis is himself a theologian, you yourself being one. You have strongly emphasized to me many times that it is important to study the pagan philosophers, pagan meaning non-Christian. Why is it important to study literature and philosophy outside the Bible for a devoted Christian? Why should Christians do that specifically? Because the scriptures themselves witness to the existence of nature. And because nature is accessible to all men everywhere at any time, I can pick up a book of, um, you know, Taoist philosophy or a Greek philosopher from hundreds of years before Christ's birth and learn something. Um, that insight is always going to be limited, but it is nonetheless real. So that's one reason, um, because there is something there, because there is truth accessible there, not in its entirety, but but in some part. Uh, well said, well thought. The other reason is because philosophy is an indispensable tool for understanding the revelation that God has given us. And it has been that way throughout the church's history, that the church has used philosophy to articulate well what it is that God has said, especially in relationship to the questions that mankind at any given time has about that revelation that God has given. Philosophy has always been indispensable in making those things clearer. So that's why Christians should study philosophy. Although there is some degree of moral instruction and advice given throughout the library of books we call the Bible, it is important to recognize that the primary purpose of this collection of books is to provide testaments of man's experience with God, who he is, what he promises, what he has done. If you rely only on Proverbs or the Ten Commandments or the various pieces of advice and instruction that Paul gives to specific churches he has planted, you will still find yourself in want of more moral wisdom. And that makes sense because the Bible does not exist as a work of moral philosophy. It exists as witness accounts regarding God and his works and promises. Let's take one of the Ten Commandments as an example of this. The Fourth Commandment says, Honor thy mother and father. Nearly every culture in the ancient world will agree with us. But the execution of such a principle will lie in the details. Confucius emphasizes that it is not merely feeding and housing your elders that is enough, for, he says, even dogs and horses receive such care. But it is the countenance of a filial son that is difficult. 
He also tells us that when one's father is in the wrong, the filial son must remonstrate gently and respectfully. Shunzi, a philosopher we mentioned already, tells us to follow E, which means righteousness and justice, not your father. The reason I find root philosophy to so conducive to cultivating wisdom is that its Tao contains not only the ordinate moral principles that concern C.S. Lewis's definition of the Tao, but the Tao of Confucius provides a productive scope of detail. It strikes properly a balance between being too abstract or too vague, for example, honor thy mother and father, and too specific, for example, when the Pharisees criticized the followers of Jesus for not washing their hands in a particular manner uh, upon which they insist. It is not that hygiene is unimportant, but if you are provided specificity without principle, or principle without more detailed guidance, you will find yourself lost and confused. Therefore, it is important to hit the mark between excessive abstraction and excessive specificity so that you will have a mastery of principle that will allow you to apply your understanding to whatever particular situation you encounter in life. The Tao of the Ru also provides a linking among the various dimensions of life. What Martin Luther once called the three estates, which is the church, the state, and the household, recognizes that there are dimensions of life. The secondary meaning of the Tao, to which we referred earlier, seeks to integrate the various dimensions of life, which, according to the great learning, uh, include the educational process of the mind and heart, the individual, the family, the state, and the world. The Tao of the Ru, the Confucian Tao, connects all these various realms of experience in the human life together so that they are consistent both in principle and in one's actual conduct. This is what Confucius means when he says that all his teachings, no matter how seemingly diverse or disconnected they might appear from each other, is actually connected by one continuous thread. There is a coherence throughout every dimension of life, if you follow the Tao of the root, from your thoughts and feelings in your mind and heart, to the harmony in the relationships you have within your family, to the roles and duties you perform for your community, to the leadership and policies of your state, and the peace you can achieve throughout the world. If you look at the epigraph page of The Abolition of Man, you'll find that the very first allusion to the Tao comes itself from the Analects of Confucius. And this Analect is from Book 2, Section 16, and is a Arthur Whaley translation. This translation reads, The Master said, He who sets to work on a different strand destroys the whole fabric. And this statement is actually a warning about what happens when a person does not integrate the dimensions of life. In other words, does not follow a Tao. There are two interpretations you can glean from this. The first is, is that if you start from a morally or ontologically incorrect premise, then you will necessarily come to harm. The other meaning is that if you do not respect the notion of continuity throughout the different aspects or dimensions of your life, in other words, follow a coherent and consistent Tao, you will end up harming yourself. The solution to avoiding this harm, then, is to ensure that you will live a way of life, a Tao, that is based on the proper moral principles and understanding of Ren. 
And rent is a concept that uh, I'm not going to define here because it's something that Confucius himself could not give a concise definition to and yet still remain accurate. And to understand Ren is something you'll be able to get uh, an intuitive sense of only if you study the analects in depth. But this concept of Ren is very important, and it does relate to what we might consider humanity or what's best about what human beings can achieve in their virtue. It is something in that ballpark. So if you follow a Tao, not only is your way of life rooted in Ren and E, justice and righteousness, everything in your life is integrated together like how a single piece of fabric requires the unbroken continuity of its thread. So that Tao is that thread that weaves throughout the fabric of your life experience. We live in a world that does not follow the Tao, either in terms of the ordinate moral principles and values as so concerned C.S. Lewis, nor in the way of ensuring consistency and coherence throughout the various domains of human activity and human life. For far too long, we have had economic policy that deteriorates harmony within the family and education that stifles the mind and heart of the individual. Recognizing that there is a great inconsistency among the various dimensions of life and that our society as a whole does not attempt to follow true ordinate moral principles and values, I would, like to dis I would like to end our discussion with some words of encouragement and truth from Confucius, words that will be deeply relevant to a man attempting to live righteously in today's perverse and dysfunctional world. And these words are from Analects of Confucius, Book 8, Section 13. The Master... Confucius said, Be sincerely faithful and love learning, and hold fast to the good Tao until death. Do not enter a state that is endangered, and do not tarry in a state that is disordered. If the Tao is being realized in the world, be known, but otherwise be obscure. If the Tao prevails within your society, it can be a cause of shame and disgrace to be poor and of low status. But when the Tao does not prevail in your society, to be wealthy and high status is itself shameful. Dr. Kuntz, I would like to give you my thanks for coming here today and sharing your insight and wisdom. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. This is Dusk Lantern here at Rekindled Radiance.